My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Many, many years ago when I was a senior in college, I remember showing up to this uh, church and there was a Sunday school class for college age and so I plugged in. And one Sunday I I went to class and the teacher, uh, he asked a question. I thought it was a good question. He said, when you think about your life, what do you want most in life? And I started thinking about that. And so we went around the room, and maybe there were a dozen people. I don't remember, but not that many. And, uh, you know, people said, well, you know, I want to graduate from college. That's, that's a good goal. Uh, I remember people saying, well, I want to find a good career. 
yeah, that's a good goal. I was thinking that too. Somebody said, I want to find a spouse. I'm like, yeah, I was thinking that one too. And you know, the people said things like, I want a truck. And I'm like, well, I wasn't thinking that. Um, and went around and it finally got to me. And he said, James, what do you want most in life? And I'll never forget it. I just blurted this out. It's kind of like I didn't know where it came from. Uh, and I was almost a little embarrassed when I said it. I said, uh, I, I want to know Christ. And then I thought, oh, that probably wasn't the right answer in Sunday school. Uh, he said, well, no, I mean, like, what do you really want? And, and I got a little embarrassed and shy, and, and I, I probably said something like uh, a wife and a truck and a job and graduate or something like that. I don't know. Um, but I, I thought about that, and I, I, was, I was going back inside of myself. I still remember that moment. But the reality was that's what I wanted. That's what I really wanted. I really wanted to know Christ. See, I'd been reading and studying and actually memorizing the book of Philippians that prior year. And I was so caught up in what the Apostle Paul wrote to this church as a thank you letter for a gift. And he had in this key, very important place in the text, in his letter, this amazing statement. In fact, it goes like this. He said, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. Now, now what, what is he thinking here? Of all people, Paul would have known Christ, right? Well, I, I think there's an important thing here. I mean, the reality is it's not like the knowing of a head knowledge. There, there is that word in Greek in the original language that Paul wrote, and he could have written a word that would have said, I have a, a knowledge that points the fact out. We all have that, right, about Christ. In fact, if you're watching even, this could be your first time watching a presentation here at Sunrise, and you have some knowledge of Christ. You would say, I know Christ. Uh, you know, some people say this, some people say that. I don't, I'm not really sure, but I, I know Christ. It's a head knowledge, though. You could even actually have been a part of Sunrise pre-COVID, remember those days, and you could have been here week after week after week, and you could say, yeah, I know Christ. But, but to know Christ isn't just to rattle off a bunch of facts about Christ. Those are good. Those are important. But what Paul used was a very specific word that was a word about experience. It wasn't just a head knowledge. Uh, Friends, it was a heart knowledge of Christ. He said, I want to experience Christ. I want to every day to deepen my knowledge, my relationship with him. I was thinking about this today. I was reading this uh, and I was thinking about uh, my marriage to my wife. And my wife and I have known each other almost 30 years. And uh, man, it's just been a journey. It's been ups and downs and amazing times. And we're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary here coming up this next winter. And I thought, I know her more than I've ever known her before. But it took a lot of time. It took a lot of engagement experience. It took a lot of dates. It took a lot of conversations. It just took a lot of time sitting on the couch and talking or going on trips together. It took a lot of times just doing stuff together. And I've known her more, and I know her more now than ever before. And I wonder why she still stays with me, because, man, I'm just a very failed human being. But that's what Paul is talking about. He said, the most important thing to me is experiencing Christ. But notice, (laughs) that doesn't come without a cost, my friends. Let me, let me just read that again. He says, I want to know Christ. No, go back. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. That sounds pretty awesome. I want to know the resurrection. Good. I, sign me up for that, right? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, 
So that one way or another, I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. See, that's where it gets difficult. Because this kind of knowing Christ isn't just all fun and games. This isn't just going to church, praying a prayer, you know, doing the things, checking the boxes. No, this kind of knowing Christ, the real knowing Christ, is walking through pain and suffering with him. Just as Christ was rejected, we would be rejected. There is a significant cost in knowing Christ. And if you've never paid a cost for knowing Christ... I just might wonder if you truly know Christ. Maybe in your head, but in your heart, in your walking with Christ, just because you pray a prayer doesn't mean everything gets better. In fact, I remember receiving Christ, things got worse. It's like, that's not what I signed up for, right? If you ever hear a sermon, when you pray a prayer, your life's going to get better, your hair's going to grow back, your marriage is going to be successful, your teenagers are going to come back and love you and say thanks, mom and dad, or whatever— Um, that's just not how it works, right? Especially the teenager part. I know it. Um, The reality is you have a target on your back. You are now public enemy number one for Satan. Because when when you want to know Christ, you're a danger to his mission, Satan's mission. And you're now on God's side. It costs something. A book I read in, in college that senior year that just revolutionized my life was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. If you've never read it, please go buy a copy and read it. It will change your life. It's hard. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. That's the death and the suffering. He said, the first Christ suffering, which every man, he's speaking plural here, you know, kind of like a general term, every man and woman must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. He says this, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or a woman or a child, he bids him come and die. Because that is what Christ did. He came and died on our behalf. And now when we follow him, we are called to know him. And not just know the beauty of the resurrection, but to know the suffering that resulted in the resurrection. So, what do you want most in life, really? What would be your deepest desire right now? And I know emotions are all over the place. I know it's challenging I know mental health is challenging. I've been traveling throughout the Northwest in my job with uh, CB Northwest. I've got 21 associations of a total of 247 churches. I visited seven of those associations so far. And I start by talking about, you know, just the basic reality that if we're not doing well as pastors, our people aren't going to do well. If we don't take care of ourselves, we could falter, we could fall. If Paul himself said, hey, I I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I become disqualified. If Paul was concerned about going off the rails, we should be too. And the reality is people are suffering. Pastors are suffering. It's six months of COVID, and we don't know what we're doing, right? I mean, every one of us, we put masks on and live our lives and do our things. But are we actually making any progress in this world? Are we doing anything? Are we seeing anything happen? It's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to get our eyes off of God and onto ourselves. See, the truth is, is if whatever you want most in life will determine your life. Let me jump into this because we're in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is the apostle who was that guy that got out of the boat and walked. And of course, then he fell. And he's the guy that opened his mouth and stuck his foot in his mouth a couple times. But he was the guy that was leading the early church, a powerful guy, 
formerly a fisherman, now a follower of Christ, fishing for men. And now he's on this journey of writing to believers who at one point in time had said yes, had prayed to receive Christ, who had celebrated that life of Christ. They were in that relationship with Christ. And I'm sure it was pretty sweet at first. But because of persecution, they were scattered. They were spread across the land. And now they are actually starting to experience this, that, that it's going to cost us something, some to the point of death. Imagine how that would change your Christianity if you knew that when you prayed to receive Christ, you would become a target. Imagine if you said, hey, I'm going to go to church, and your friend said, man, I'm reporting you to the authorities. Or imagine if you, you know, joined the ministry of a small group, or you led a ministry, and all of a sudden, you know, the police came knocking, and uh, you were caught up, and you were captured, and you were thrown into jail or prison, or put into one of those gulags or something like that. That's what it's like for people today around the world. That's what it was like for those early believers. We have it easy, my friends. In fact, I say we have it too easy, because then it doesn't cost anything. Peter writes this, and he starts his book by just focusing on this new change we have, what sets us apart. He says this, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He says this, now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Now, that's a lot. That's a whole lot of information, and I understand that. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to kind of jump back into it. But just, just the reality is this. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, something significant happens to you. When you actually trust in Christ, when you believe and you receive Jesus, you actually have a change, an internal change. You experience a new birth. Now, Peter is reminding these believers of that reality because they need that hope to hang on to, to cling to. The the significance of a new birth for a person who's scattered around is an important reminder that, yes, this happened to you, and as a result, you are fleeing for your lives. But the fact is, is that you are totally changed. You'll never be the same again, and you are safe and secure no matter what kind of suffering you endure in the world. He goes back, and I'm just going to kind of go back to that first verse there that we looked at. He says this. He says, all praise to God. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we, that you, my friends, have been born again. We've been born again because God raised Christ, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Born again, that is the phrase that if if we've read the Bible, uh, we are echoing back to Jesus with Nicodemus, that religious Pharisee who came to Jesus at night and wanted to know what was up, what's going on. And Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm an old man. Am I supposed to go back in my mother's womb? It doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, you know, everybody's born of water. When we're born, we pass through our mother's womb and there's this broken water and everybody's born of water, but not everybody's born of the spirit. And he said, yes, you start there, but if you don't experience a spiritual birth, a rebirth, you do not have a spiritual life with God. This means that your Christianity isn't just some spiritual mystical experience. I mean, it has that. It's not just some subjective feeling you get. You have that. It's not just a spiritual high. It's more than that. It's a reality. Being born again means being born from above, born with a brand new life. You get a brand new life in Jesus at the moment that you received Jesus Christ. When you believed and received, you became a brand new person in Jesus. 
When you're born again, you receive a brand new spiritual life. Peter says this, he goes on, he says, now we live, because we have this experienced life, we live with a great hope, a great expectation, a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. See, he's writing this because they're experiencing a lot of change and decay. People are beginning to fall left and right. People are struggling. And he goes, you have a hope that is rock solid. You've put your feet on the rock of Jesus Christ, and there is something before you that is solid and secure, and there is something long after you pass from this earth, and you will receive that. Through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So what Peter is saying is God has put his spirit in you, but your salvation is not quite complete. Now, that might seem a little mysterious, but in the Bible, in the New Testament, when the writers talk about it, Paul, he talks about salvation as uh, like three different tenses, a past, a present, and a future. And that's very true, that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved, that when we were saved, we believed in Jesus, and there was a moment, the Bible calls it, we were justified, we were put in a right relationship with God. When you received Christ, however long ago that was, for me, no, December of 1979, that was in another century, folks, you know, when, when I received Christ, I was justified, I was put in a right relationship with God by faith, not by works. I was made right and I could stand before God right, not of my own effort. When you experienced that, when you prayed, some of you recent, somebody did that just this week, a couple, a husband and wife that had been checking out Sunrise online and they'd never been here and they finally showed up and one of our pastors led them to Jesus. That moment they were justified, but that's just step one of salvation. And then we're sanctified. Sanctified is being made holy. If you were there with us last week, we talked about this idea of being set apart. And in the the Old Testament, the view is like a, a highway to holiness, a road to holiness. And this idea is that we don't want to get caught in a tourist trap. We don't want to take a detour. We don't want to stall out or get a flat tire on our sanctification. Sanctification is being made more and more and more like Jesus, being conformed to his image. And it's not easy, friends, but that's our journey in the middle. But what's the end? Well, it's the end. It's called glorified, where glorification happens. And we get a new body. We we experience a new life just like Jesus. And everything is complete. That's not happened yet, right? And so this three-part of salvation, Peter says, you've received it, but you're going to receive it, and it's going to be fully, finally complete. One of the hardest parts of this idea of receiving Christ and salvation, for me at least, early on, was the fact that I, I received a new inside, but I didn't receive a new outside. I was expecting some kind of change. I was thinking something would be different. I mean, again, I was 15 years old. I was hoping at least my pimples would be gone, right? My acne would be gone. Some would clear up in my life, right? But the fact is, when you come to Christ, most of us don't have that dramatic experience of saved from something like that. Some do, that's great. But most of us experience that slow and steady change where God is inside of us shaping and reshaping and remolding and forming us into the image of Christ. An internal change begins. It's kind of like having children. 
uh, you know, I, I love this. And uh, man, I hope one day COVID goes away and you guys all come over to my house. We have a barbecue or whatever. But you come into my kitchen there, right there and right by our sink. We have our digital picture frame. And I talk about it a lot because it's about nostalgia. It's about history. And I've got all these pictures of our boys and our experiences and what was going on in their lives. And I'll just, I'll just stand there and watch it. I'll go, Mary Beth, look at that one. Look at that guy in the middle. Look at that face. I just did that today. It's like that was a good time. That was a good moment. And, and, and you don't see the change in that moment. But over time, you see him grow up. Gosh, my boys are taller than us. Noah towers above us. They're bigger than us, right? They're not smarter than us. They think they are, but they're not. But man, they've changed so much. They had growth spurts, right? But you know, as a mom and dad, we didn't see it happening because it was so slow and subtle. See, that's like our salvation, friends. It's true and it's sure. God is changing you. Maybe you go through spurts. I hope you do. But sometimes it's just that highway to holiness growing us up because we have a hope that will not go away. It starts small, but the possibilities are enormous. You've become a new person. There's a story told of Augustine, uh, one of the aged saints, and he had lived a pretty corrupt pagan lifestyle before coming to Jesus. And so one day he's out on the road there in the place where he was, and he was hanging out and he was on a journey. And one of the prostitutes that he used to formally associate with and pay uh, came up to him and she said, Augustine, it's me, because he was avoiding her. He wasn't acknowledging her. She said, Augustine, it's me. And he looked at her and said, yes, I see, but it's no longer me. And I love that. We're no longer who we were. We're changed. We've been given a new birth with a great expectation, a great hope, a priceless inheritance. The reality is your spiritual birth changes our focus from the stuff of earth to the stuff of heaven. Our vision changes. Our our priorities change. The realities change. The hope changes. You and I are living with an eternal hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. It's never going to perish. It's never going to falter. It's never going to fade. It's never going to rot or spoil. The reality is it's kept safe in heaven for us. That's our new perspective. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I think about this when I talk to people and counsel people or maybe encourage them towards Jesus. See, the truth is, is that the course of your life, friends, the course of your life is being set for what you hope in the most. Whatever you put your hope in, that's going to become your security. But more than that, it's going to become your reality. Because what you put your hope in is where you will live your life. The reality is, for us, we have desires, right? We have meaning. We want meaning. We want significant. We want to achieve. We want to be loved. We want security and purpose. We want to belong. We want to know others love us. Those are all good and true desires. There's nothing wrong with those. God put those inside of us. The question is, where will you go or to whom will you go to pursue the end of those desires? Because if you put them here on the earth to to people, to things, well, maybe that list will be fulfilled for a, a bit, for a while, but it will ultimately not satisfy your heart and your soul. Whatever, whoever you're believing in for hope and purpose, for fulfilling your desires is going to define you and it will ultimately fail. In the world today, people all around the world, ourselves included, we put our hopes on our career or on our money or maybe our security or on our accomplishments or our politics or our status or a family, or beauty, or pleasure, whatever we put our hopes in. I know we all do it. Everyone's heart chooses something or someone to put their hope in. Somehow we believe that that will fulfill us, fulfill our desires, 
but fulfill our meaning and purpose in life, our identity in life. We're all doing that. Those who put their hope in their own ability, unfortunately, will one day realize that that fades, that breaks, right? Those that put their hopes in their career might just hear, you're fired or you're laid off. Those that put their hope in their security of finances will probably hear, the stock market has crashed, right? Those who put their hope in a person might just hear, I no longer want to be your friend or I no longer want to be married to you. Whatever we put our hope in, if it's not in Jesus Christ, it will disappoint us. When you open your eyes and you begin to think about what you put your hope in, is it eternal? Is it protected? Is it safe? Because Peter says our salvation is safe and secure and it's in Jesus Christ. We're going to jump down to verse 8 to 12. Next week, we'll come back and see this middle portion because it's a little bit different thought. It's just beautiful. I can't wait to preach it. He says, you love him, speaking of Jesus, even though you've never seen him. I think about that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked the earth, and I've not seen him. The people who Peter wrote to, they didn't see him. They heard the stories. They probably saw eyewitnesses. They met people, right? They might have hung out with Mary, or they might have hung out with John. They hung out with Peter, right? It's like, okay, you've never seen him. But you have your hope in him. You love him. You love him even though you have never seen him. And though you don't see him now, you trust him. You love him and you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. And the reward for that love and trust is the salvation of your soul. It's the eternal life. In other words, you're rejoicing in hope, a true hope. A follower of Jesus realizes this way. I just wrote this down. The hope I've been looking for in the stuff of earth can only be found in Jesus, the stuff of heaven. And I'm not going to rest my hope on anything or anyone less than Jesus. That is the only thing that will ultimately satisfy me. Friends, I have to remind myself of that sometimes. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote it this way. It's beautiful. He says, creatures, He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists, right? If I were to think right now about, oh, let me think about this like a seven-layer chocolate cake, you know? Uh, You know why I desire that? And milk, of course. is because a seven-layer chocolate cake exists. I'm not just dreaming up something fanciful. He says here, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Pause for a second on that. That means that your deepest desires and satisfactions can never be met by anything on the stuff of earth. Maybe to some degree, maybe partially, maybe we can put our hope in that, but that will ultimately not satisfy us. There's only one thing we're really longing for. Lewis goes on to say this, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy that's so important. Let's not get them confused. Or echo or mirage or a shadow of. And he concludes with this. He says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. Remember last week? where I read that passage in Hebrews where they were looking for another country that they hadn't gone to yet. This is what he's saying here. I can never forget that my deepest desire cannot be satisfied here. 
He says it must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Peter, it's just exactly what he's saying. He, 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 he says it with these words. He says this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about. Even the Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied about it, when they wrote, when they did this, he says, they prophesied about this glorious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and the great glory afterward. And then I'll wrap it up with this. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you, for you. And now this gospel, this good news, has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things. I love that. That is, that is weird. We don't really quite know what it means, except somehow the angels still marvel at salvation. We don't know how old angels are. We don't know, were they at creation? Uh, were they before creation? Or they, you know, they're not back from eternity because only God is, but thousands, millions, I don't know how long they've been around, but they've been around so long they've seen this earth and they still, this is my little puny mind thinking it this way, they still peer over the clouds of heaven. I know bad theology, I'm just thinking, thinking about it. And they marvel when people come to Christ. In December of 79, they marveled when I received Christ. Just, just this week, they marveled that two people walked into sunrise in the building and heard a message of salvation. And their salvation begun with the justification, that first step, and they received Christ. And I'm just imagining the angels like elbowing, if they've got elbows, I don't know, winging one another, you know, a COVID wing. I don't know what they're doing. And they're like, did you see that? Man, I'll never get over the mystery of that. See, that, my friends, is what you've received, salvation. Even the angels, those prophets from the Old Testament, they didn't know what they were writing about, but they wrote it down, and only now do we see the completion. If you remember Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, he appears on the road to Emmaus with these two guys, and they're walking and talking, and they're despondent because Christ has been crucified, and they don't know the full picture. And he's like, come on, guys, this is what the Old Testament's all about, right? The Bible talks about this. And then he starts with Moses and all the prophets, and he explains all of this. They got a a clear picture. I would have loved to have been there, please. That would have been great. Because he said, Peter says, that's what they were writing about, and now you are experiencing it. The word gospel just means announcement. It means a proclamation of good news. And the good news is that there's peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5. There's peace with God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets, the saints, as they wrote, they didn't get the full picture. You, my friends, get the full picture. You see it now in a way that even Peter and these people he wrote to didn't see it. We have a completed view of it, and we look back on it. Do you marvel about it? Is it a miracle to your heart? Do you understand that this imperishable hope is something to completely put your rock-solid foundation upon, to walk on it, stand there? The reason our hope is imperishable is because it's founded on Jesus, who is imperishable, not wishful thinking. Jesus suffered, my friends, and he died in your place. He came to take the punishment you deserve so God would forgive you. This means it's not based on your performance or good deeds. It's based on his performance and good deed on the cross. Your hope is imperishable 
because Jesus Christ perished for you on the cross. Your future is assured because he emptied himself of his glory for your sake. And he rose again so that you could have the hope of an eternal resurrection. And friends, as I close, before I pray, I just want to ask you the question, do you have that hope? Do you have a hope of an eternal resurrection? Not some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, not some, you know, opiate of the masses, but a true hope in God through Jesus Christ. Because this world is, in case you haven't noticed, pretty messed up. This week I went to Eugene, as last night actually, and I, I spoke with pastors and I had to drop off my friend John in Portland on the Hawthorne area where he'd parked his car. And as I always do, I just drive across Morrison Bridge and I was just there and the bridge went up and I'm sitting there waiting and, and don't think anything of it and the bridge goes down. It's 1017 at night in Portland and I'm driving through and I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> this, is the, this was the day of the Brianna Taylor judgment and people were not happy. And I see crowds, I see smoke, I see police cars, I see incendiary devices going off. I think, I'm in trouble. I'm a white guy in a Subaru. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I, I don't think they'll give me a chance to say that I believe Black Lives Matter or that anybody matters because I don't think I'll matter in this moment. I just, like, I just found a way to skirt away and get away. And I thought, I, I started praying. I thought, I, I, yeah, man, I wish I could stop and walk. And I, I don't know what happened and pray. And, and this world is broken. People are putting their hope in something that is so perishable. I hope for you, as you watch this, that you have a rock-solid foundation in Jesus. That it's not just some pie-in-the-sky prayer that you prayed, but it's really, truly on Jesus. And if it's not, I want to pray a prayer right now that would invite you to say yes to that. That you would want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and you'd be willing to share in his suffering. And so somehow, to attain to that resurrection of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we close our eyes, as we bow our heads in reverence to you and respect to you, God, I just want to say thank you for sending Jesus. Our, our sure foundation is not in our performance. It's not in our ability. It's not in our knowledge. It's not in our wisdom. It's in our brokenness because Jesus has done it all. And when we come before you broken, when we come before you, kneeling before you in humility, confessing our sin to you, confessing the reality of our brokenness and that we have put our hope and our trust in things that falter and fail, completely fall apart. God, you receive us and you forgive us and you give us a new life and we are justified. We are placed in a right relationship and it's just as if we've never sinned because Jesus took our sin. And Father, I pray that right now, every person hearing or watching or participating in this message, in this worship experience, would know you. If not, they could simply do that with a prayer of receiving you. Not just some simple emotional high, but some true salvation that comes from believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and receiving the message that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we receive that, we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
Father God, I just want to pray a prayer. And those of you who have never done it, you could pray with me. God, thank you for loving me. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But you love me. And so I receive it. Because of Jesus and his death on the cross, he took my sin. He took my sorrow. And what weighed him down were my sins. And so I believe that. And I receive your forgiveness and eternal life. And I declare I've become a son or a daughter of the Most High God. God, teach me to walk like Jesus walked. And as you sanctify me on the road to holiness, purify me and change me so that I might bring others on the journey. And one day I'll see you face to face and I'll be glorified. And my salvation will be full. It'll be complete because it's been founded in you from the very beginning. If you prayed that prayer, I just want to say thanks because you're son or daughter of God, the most high God. And I want to pray for you and with you. Let us know as we walk this journey so that we could be that church that leads you in a growing relationship with Jesus. God, we pray this all in your name. Amen.